Alright, today's reading is from Revelation 21, 1 through 3, and 9 through 23. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and all at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. That's really cool. <laughs> the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The word of the Lord for the people. Good morning. Am I on? Yeah. All right, good. Um, welcome. It's been a long time since I've preached here inside. I uh, got onto Reddit this week, which is regularly a dangerous act, but Reddit forward slash atheists was actually really super helpful for my sermon. Because what I was trying to get was, what do people think about heaven? Now, both Muslim and Christian views of heaven took a pretty good beating, but it was really helpful. By far, the most prominent claim against heaven was that it would be, can you guess? 
boring. I remember being a kid living in Germany, my, uh, spending summers in Italy with all of the cathedrals and art that I had the very same thought. All those images seemed boring. My mom had a life-altering spiritual reawakening uh, when I was young, and so we started going to church. For me, that was mass again. My dad wasn't hip to all that, so we would, the three of us would go, and I would start to learn about these kinds of things. And people had talked about worshiping God forever in heaven. And that's all they talked about when it came to heaven. Now, sometimes they talk about seeing loved ones, which was cool, and then not seeing loved ones, which was not cool. My dad was out, not there. But in my young imagination, it was about sitting on a cloud with a harp and singing third-rate poetry set to fourth-rate classical hymns with a fifth-rate musician. I was an arrogant child. Glad that's over. Um, I was into The Cure and Depeche Mode and some heavy Michael Jackson influences with a little smidge of Huey Lewis in the news. Harp music wasn't my thing. The soundtrack and the prevailing activity of heaven seemed boring. But my problem with, or the problem with my view of Christian heaven wasn't the scripture's fault. It was the Christians around me's fault, both for its misunder, their misunderstanding of it and not giving themselves to how these things might look like incredible promise. I don't actually think it was until seminary, a dozen years after my own life-altering encounter with God, that I really began to want to go to heaven. And now I can't wait. What our passage is doing for us today is readjusting our expectations of the hopes of heaven. And it starts with a city. Heaven is a city. It's a new city. It's actually a twin city, heaven and earth. It's like Winston instead of Winston-Salem. You sometimes say heaven, but it's a twin city. Um, And sometimes people call it a return to Eden, but that's not exactly right. It's true that the garden is called paradise and that we were graciously kept from that garden so that we wouldn't continue forever in our ruined, and and us continue to ruin its state. But it's not actually so much a return to heaven or to, to Eden, but a fulfillment of all the purposes of Eden. Our original parents were meant to till and toil and multiply, make Eden work, to take gracious dominion over the place and animals for its flourishing. It was purpose was to build a city. Think about that. Our original purpose was to live with God and one another and make a city together. And the Bible ends in that city, not because we did such an amazing job of city building, Our planning and activities in there were not that helpful. But because he built it for us, and he built it in us. Now, what you see in Revelation is is like a mystical uh, travel diary of John here, um, of of taking a tour, if you will. And it's not like describing a, a map, per se, but it's, uh, it's, it's like a travel book. One of the most famous travel books of all time was by Marco Polo. When I say Marco Polo, depending on your age, you will think of about three different things. 
Marco Polo was actually a, in, lived in the 1200s. And he, at only 17 years old, took an epic journey lasting 25 years. He went across the steps of Russia. He's Italian. Across the steps of Russia, those incredible mountains of Afghanistan, through the deserts of Persia, and over the top through the Himalayas, maybe not the tip top, but through the Himalayas, and landed in this place called China. Through an amazing set of circumstances, he actually became one of the chief aides to the most powerful, wealthy human being that existed in that world in probably many centuries, Kublai Khan. He would describe these the European castles looked like roadside villages compared to the empire that he saw. That, that, that Khan's palace dwarfed the largest cathedrals in Europe. That there was a dining room that sat 6,000 people, served on gold plates. He saw the world's first paper money marveled at gunpowder. It would be 400 years before Europe as a continent produced as much steel as Khan's reign. And then he tasted what we would become pasta. <laughs> After 17 years working with Khan, he became his, came on his journey home back to Venice. He was a Venetian. He's loaded down with gold and silk and spices. And he was telling the tales. And everybody thought he was a lunatic. They thought he made the whole thing up. His, his priest asked him, to recount, asked him to recount of his lying. His family, at his deathbed, begged him to recant his tales of China. It was actually in prison when he and a buddy talked and started writing down the travels of Million, which is Marco's nickname. The first thing you see in the first attack against boredom is beauty. Boredom flees in the presence of beauty. It can't survive there. Its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then you have the list, well pronounced by the way, very fine, jasper, sapphire, emerald, onyx, I didn't even know if I knew it, this one, carnelian, chrysolite, I used to have a friend named Burl, but it's Beryl, um, topaz, this is the one I just don't, chrysop, mm -hmm. jacinth, and amethyst. The, the foundations the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. City was pure gold, like clear glass. Clear glass was really important. You couldn't get clear glass back in the day to have those impurities out. The 12 gates were pearls, and each gate was a single pearl. That's a big pearl. I don't know what half of those jewels are, and I looked them all up. What John saw was overwhelming beauty. 
It's a sensation overload. It's the purpose of what's going on. It's, it's the immersion Van Gogh exhibit on steroids. It's supposed to make you feel utterly undone in the experience of beauty. The gates aren't for protection. Neither are the angels. They're open wide. They're for decor. I don't know how it happened, but something about my father's presence in my kid's life, his love for the sea and the sun, but I love this thing that my kids do and have, is that they will go out of their way to see a sunset. They'll plan their days around it in the summer, figure out if they can take the top off the Jeep and get it so you can really experience it, you know what I mean? They, they, they prioritize the wonder of the setting sun just to bask in its beauty. And you know, my my teenage kids are pretty typical teenage kids with plenty of cynicism to go around. But they behold the beauty of something. Beauty gives boredom and cynicism. Uh, it just pushes it away and it ignites delight. John's dream of heaven, given to him by the angel who just delivered judgment on the world, he grabs him by the hand and says, you have no idea how beautiful what is in store for you. You can't comprehend it, and that's not to shame you, but to give you hope, courage, and joy in a world that has battered and bruised you. Remember the saints that are originally hearing this are right about the, I mean, they're talking about martyrdom all the time, and this is what's before them, and they're being persecuted. Heads are lopped off. Bodies are burned. Nothing could be more enlivening than to say, that is not the end, the brutalness of the city you live in, but the city that I'm bringing you to. There's no boredom because of its beauty. But there's another thing here that you need to see is that the, it's not just no boredom because of its beauty, but also the bustle of the city. There's so much going on. One of my problems with being bored in heaven is that I totally bought into the private-only, psychological-only interior vision of it. It's just not what the Bible says. It's full of redeemed human beings living with one another and doing stuff. He carried, away, he carried me away, saw this holy city come down out of Jerusalem. The city wasn't statics. It's, it's a city. And it comes down to us, those who've been washed have washed their dirty robes in Jesus. And we, real people, with all our historic, not then, but now brokenness and rebellion, we have the glory, the weight, the brilliance of God on us and in us. John actually tells us that real people in all their grunge and glory are named in the city. You got your 12 gates, you got your 12 tribes of Israel, you got your 12 foundations. What are the 12 apostles or disciples of the Lamb? I don't even know what it means to have 12 foundations. But they're named after people you don't know anything about. Dan, you got his life story in your back pocket? Reuben, Philip, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, a dude named James the Lesser, J.V. James. They're named after the tribes of Israel, the people who sold their brother into slavery. What kind of grace has to occur? What kind of redemption has to occur that the people you know nothing about are named in this city or you know terrible things about them? There's a gate for Peter who denied Jesus three times. For Matthew, who's a price-gouging tax collector, 
for Simon the Zealot, who was a radical, violent activist with a carry and conceal permit that he was not afraid to use. And yet the bustle of this is tied to the dimensions. Its height, width, and length are the same. And, you know, just like we and the angels do, it's 1,200 stadia, as you know, clearly. It's about 1,500 miles. It's a perfect cube that runs from here to Houston, somewhere else, 1,500 miles, and up 1,500 miles. I'll get to ports of the cube later. So 1,500 miles each way, roughly the same number of square miles of the Roman Empire. See what he did there? John is constructing a symbolic universe, not an architectural design. The city will be enormous, filled with people in unity, doing the stuff they love, working on hobbies and building beautiful things. Revelation shows us in a larger picture, in, in the rest of it, that, that human history, represented by human names and human goods, is part of what lasts into eternity. That's amazing. I mean, I know that I am going to be an amazing harmonica player in heaven. Never really taken a lesson, but I'm, I, you know, I've got some time. I've taken two art lessons. I'm not very good. But maybe the first thousand years I chatted up with an 8th century artist whose name I don't know. Definitely going to learn some obscure language that's died out and only spoken in heaven again. I know that sounds boring to y'all, but that sounds kind of fun to me. For you introverts, there is plenty of space. Don't worry. 1,500 miles. You can go 1,500 miles up. I don't know what you can do up there, but... Earlier in... Revelation, we know the ships of Tarshish and the camels of Midian are in the New Jerusalem. Isn't that wild? All camels go to heaven. <laughs> or at least all Midian camels go to heaven. All the best of human civilizations redeemed and present there. Continuing to grow and grow up in those skills. How could heaven be boring? Almost every culture, every culture I know of, has some afterlife vision that is good, often good and bad, but good. Aborigines have a distant island in the west. The Finns have a distant island in the east. Mexicans and Peruvians believe there's some merger with the sun or the moon. Um, some Native Americans believe, I love this, that this, their spirits would hunt the spirits of the buffalo in the afterlife. The Gilgamesh epic refers to resting in the place of heroes with kind of a tree of life in it. The Egyptian pyramids embalmed their pharaohs and had maps to guide them in the future. The Romans believed we'd picnic in the Elysian fields. They differ. But the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is a hope in heaven. And what if the Bible isn't just giving a competing or nullifying view of heaven and all its cultural longings, but a fulfillment? What if it's doing that? What will our iPhone look like then? <laughs> DOS is what I'm thinking. I don't, will the piano still have 88 keys or will it have 165 or just four? I don't know. Creme brulee will not jack up your sugar. <laughs> 
Korean barbecue won't jack up your cholesterol. Vegans and beef eaters will figure it out. <laughs> and fine wine won't ever be for escape, but celebration. The city is alive, bustling with the activity of the people and history and civilizations that have been redeemed and are living out that redemption, the continued progressive growth of that. It's not just beautiful, it's bustling. It's a busy city. And the whole thing points, and this is where there is a competing um, narrative with the other entities, the other uh, culture's longings, is that there is the Lord God Almighty there and the Lamb. I'm going to give you a church nerd phrase. It's called the beatific vision. Now, you probably haven't heard a lot of that. It's kind of a high churchy kind of thing. Typically in Catholic and Episcopalian or Anglican communities, they have a rich history of developing this. But they don't have the market on that. All sorts of theologians have written about it throughout history. And there's a resurgence now among uh, recent scholarship and sermons and devotionals recovering our own kind of larger reform tradition in this. So what is this beatific vision? It is the ultimate direct self-revealing of God to individual people. The ultimate direct, sometimes self-revealing, sometimes self-communicating of God to the individual person. But behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He would dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The word I'm using for this, this beatific vision is bliss. You can't be bored in a state of bliss. And that's what it is. God's showing you individually his true self. All his majesty, all his unfathomable love. It's bliss with God. If we go back to the perfect cube, there's only one other perfect cube in all of Scripture. It is the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple in ancient Jerusalem. The place where God lived in the Old Testament. This holy city, this new heaven and new earth, this new Jerusalem, has been expanded from a small box at the center of something that was hidden to the very city that encompasses, encompasses us, where we live and move and have our being. Only one dude a year could go into that little box. Only one day on the Day of Atonement. And there are all sorts of rituals that he would had to do and, and so that he would live, and then even a rope tied to him just in case he didn't, they could pull him out. And now, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus took over the place and then expanded it 1,500 miles in each direction. A perfect cube. He replaced the place where God dwelt. This beatific vision, this bliss, is the ultimate end of human nature and human longing. It's the great comedy of the gospel resulting in the perfect and permanent happiness. And happiness is not the wrong word there. 
Isaac Watts called it the heaven of heavens and the quintessence of happiness. Edwards says the pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brim full so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room for anything adverse to joy. And it's not static either. It's dynamic, progressive, eternal. He's pouring out the communication, revealing to himself the Father who is the author of our salvation, the Jesus who is the accomplisher of our clean robes, and the Spirit who applied it to all. I think they're just, they're just pouring forth all the details and all the realities of our own lives and how they've been redeemed. All the worst things that you've ever done become a jewel in some foundation somewhere because it has been redeemed. Yes, we will worship, and there'll be dubstep and dulcimers and harps and Hammond organs, definitely Hammond organs. And so we will pour out to him, but he, in his grace and mercy and majesty, is also pouring out to us. He takes our stories and reworks them into the very architecture of glory. The worst thing you've ever done has not made you unfit for that place. If you turn to the gracious lamb on the throne, just let him wash. You may still think of heaven and be a little bored. But my intention was never to convince you not to be bored. My intention was to present to you what John and the followers of Jesus have never thought bored and then evaluate where you are in relationship to them and put a picture of this image into your mind and heart and wrestle with it so that you might see. We can be way too like the Venetians of Marco Polo. And I think what our passage is doing today is what happened on Marco Polo's deathbed. They were begging him to recant, begging him to recant. And he said, I have not even told you half of what I saw. And I think what John's doing for us is to actually blow our minds and blow up our hearts. And by the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, the Father, say, I've not even told you of half of what I've saw and what I have for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Would you blow our minds? Would you blow up our hearts? Would you? It's scary to consider seeing sometimes even ourselves face to face with one another and people we love. But to see you, to have you talk to us, to tell us, the amazing stories of your work in us. Oh, Lord, don't let us lean away from this. Let us lean into it so that we would be so, so heavenly-minded. We would be earthly good, full of hope, full of joy. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen.